This is the Swift by Sundell podcast, the show that answers your questions about Swift development. Hi, everybody, and welcome back for episode number 13 of this podcast. I'm your host, John Sundell, and I'm joined today by another really awesome guest. He is a developer at Artsy and he's been a really prominent member of the iOS community for quite a while uh, with tools like CocoaPods and Danger and lots of other cool stuff. It's Ortha Therox. Welcome to the show, Ortha. Hey, everyone. Uh, uh, and hey, John. How's it going? Hey, <laughs> that's great. How are you? I'm pretty rocking, thanks. It's uh, actually snowed yesterday in New York for the first time this year. Oh, yeah. I saw some photos of that. It looked really pretty with all the snow and everything. Yep, and now it's really sunny, so it's fabulous. Perfect. Maybe it'll be a white Christmas after all. Maybe. Yeah. So we've known each other now for uh, a couple of years. I think we originally met the first time at a meetup in Stockholm, yep. if my memory serves correctly. Yep, that was it. Yeah, so you've been uh, kind of very actively involved in the community for quite some time, you know, doing lots of talks and open source and all the kinds of stuff. Uh, how did all that start for you? Like, when did you get started and, you know, working more with the community and things like that? So I feel like uh, I got started, uh, once I started to become more of a senior developer, um, I, I actually joined Artsy before I really started contributing to open source at a large scale. Um, and at that point, I started to uh, be the only remote developer in the company. And so there was a lot of time when it was just like me at home on a completely different time zone. And so I started figuring that I had some spare time when everyone else was sleeping that maybe I should start contributing back to the tools that I rely on. So uh, at the time, CocoaPods um, was uh, like authenticating for a new pod, a new version of your pod required actually sending a pull request to somebody at CocoaPods and making and them like manually looking it over and saying, yeah, this, this looks like it would compile and just merging <laughs> it into the specs repo. That was the CI. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was it was a manual CI back then. You you had both like the CI that would say, "Yeah, this is legit Ruby," but you actually had to like genuinely look at it and be like, "Yeah, this is probably going to be fine." <laughs> um, and so I was I was thinking like, there is a human being doing this, and that is probably one of the maintainers of CocoaPods, like you know the library and the tool. And I don't really think they should be spending their time doing this. This is a bit trivial for them, like. Uh, Instead, we should actually consider ourselves like I should take that role so that then they can move on to harder things. And so I did that for about a year and then someone did the exact same thing to me. <laughs> someone relieved you of duty. Yeah, I went on holiday for two weeks and then uh, Keith Smiley like completely replaced me in that job. <laughs> nice. Awesome. And was this like this was kind of how you got involved with with Cocoa Pods and uh what happened from there like because a lot of people know you from, you know, from Cocoa Pods and you've been a kind of big um, you know, you've evangelized it a lot and kind of been been a big spokesperson for it. So, kind of where did it go from there? I think I wanted to just really attack a hard problem. Uh it was it was very obvious um from working in any of a developer ecosystem that a dependency manager is kind of the central hub of a community. Uh you, you need to use it to like interact with almost anything else. And so I, I looked through CocoaPods as it stood, um, realized that documentation needed some updating, the website was pretty hard to use, 
Um, and so, you know, I just devoted what skills I had, which at that time was a little bit of design skills because I'd gone to like a hacker school for design and, you know, a few years of programming in both uh, Ruby and Coco and tried to just, you know, consolidate all that into one better resource for the community. And that basically is something that I've been doing now for like six years, building the CocoaPuzz websites, building the infrastructure around statistics or like CocoDocs. These are all just things that are like auxiliary projects that are related to CocoaPods that are all about like trying to provide better insight into the community and know, building better tools for ourselves in order to like have these really vibrant third party uh, like open source community. Yeah, that's really awesome. Uh, I think that's a, that's a very good kind of way of summarizing uh, your work, at least from you know the way I see it, is that you know you're very passionate about developer tools and building communities around those tools. Uh, so you know now late, lately with with Danger and all the kind of different flavors of Danger as well, you know different languages that you can use it in. Um, so what is it about developer tools that kind of you know gets you going that you're excited about? I think it's genuinely a simple one. It's it, it's just easier to scratch your own itch sometimes. Um, everything that I've worked on has been like very pragmatically related to the thing that I'm actually trying to build, and you know that thing is artsy. And I've been doing artsy now for seven years, and every single like project that I do has a direct correlation to the thing that I'm trying to build at artsy. That could be like, you know, a very complicated iOS app or that could be like trying to maintain the, like a team of like engineers that all will have some kind of inconsistencies that we could try and automate away some of our problems. Um, and so I, I feel like that helps to really provide a focus for what I actually want to be working on and where I want to be devoting my time. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's very similar for me as well that... You know, a lot of the tools that I've built as well as, you know, come from a need that I had that I didn't feel was fulfilled in any way or there wasn't any tool already uh, available to, to just, you know, solve that problem. So rather than just waiting around, then why not just, you know, get your hands dirty and actually, you know, build something that could help you solve that problem? Yeah, exactly. I, I remember one of, one of my, like, first kind of... Uh, mentalities around being a developer when I was, you know, one or two years into doing it was that I really wanted a like large corpus of code uh, myself that I could then like build on top of things much more, much easier. So I tend to um, like I and Artsy actually have this opinion that, you know, if you depend on something, that dependency is basically your dependency as well as someone else's. Mine and your interactions, John, over the last month on Marathon are a perfect example of how this this works out. It's like, I wanted to build a lot of the infrastructure that you had already built in Marathon. And so I ended up just reusing and basically taking over your project for the last few months in order <laughs> yeah, to get great. where I want to be. Right. <laughs> exactly. Like you get free work and I get like, I actually get free work because I didn't have to build all this stuff. I only had to like extend it, make it configurable, make it like, you know, an API that other people can use. Um, and the trade-off there is that like, you know, we all end up with better tools together. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a complete right mindset to have. And a lot of people ask me, you know, how to get started with open source. And the thing I always recommend is to, you know, just start getting involved with the tools and the, the frameworks and all the projects that you use yourself and kind of treat them as your own code base. Uh, because that's the kind of way we can build these things together so they don't rely on only one person. Yeah, totally. Like uh, good examples of this that I've done are like Spectre and Expector. 
uh, I took over those projects. I don't necessarily actually do much on them, but I maintain them. Uh, in fact, the list of things that I don't do much stuff on and maintain is extremely long. <laughs> um, but like part of that is that like just being just being someone to like respond to GitHub issues or to be able to say yes or no to a pull request and to be able to ship a release of something is like a really useful uh, like contribution to the community even if it is something as minor as you know i'll accept one pull request updating it to swift 4 instead of swift 3. so um one of your latest projects has been uh, danger uh, which i got into quite recently uh in some of my open source projects you know trying to automate things a bit more when it comes to uh, reviews and uh, the CI things. So can you tell us a little bit about how that came to be and kind of what Danger is and what the philosophy is behind it? So Danger is a tool that helps you automate code review. Uh, basically, you already are uh, automating a large ton of like work inside your uh, application. So if you're writing unit tests, for example, then you are probably making sure that you don't have to manually click on a bunch of things in order to validate that your app acts like you think it does. Code review is something that uh, if you're if you're as, as active as I am on GitHub, uh, the, uh, a thing came out yes uh, last week that said that I was the fifteenth most active person on GitHub. Wow, that's crazy. I know. Uh, <laughs> I've been talking <laughs> with my wife about it, and she's like, "This is a good thing." I don't really know. <laughs> um, when you're as active as I am on GitHub, you, there's a lot of things that you just want to, you know not have to say uh like you know oh you forgot to add a change like entry um uh, or like this file if you've changed this file you need to also change this file um and like part of this stuff is like implicit culture uh of the of individual projects so what we were finding is um cocopods is a really good example cocopods is a massive project um maybe there's like 15 odd repos there's like the community contributes quite a lot and we have these expectations on like pull requests that they include changelog entries in a specific format that like it passes rubocop uh, like a linter tool like swiftlint um and that it has tests and stuff like that but every time uh we need to we <laughs> normally a human being has to respond saying like can you include a changelog entry and so i started trying to build a tool that would just automate that one thing and i wanted to build it in the same way we built like cookapods's infrastructure which is that you just assume that somebody's going to have some of the most complicated projects in the world and so the file that defines uh how to create these rules should be end user code so you've got to give people the tools to build their own rules rather than upright you know saying up front these are the only rules that can be ran and so i ended up building what is effectively like a a, a team culture ci runner uh and called it danger after my wife nice I like to think of it as just you know a, a pre-check, like it, it, and they get it as you know the the person sending the PR gets that check much quicker than they'll get a human review, so they're much more likely to get the PR in a state that you want it in by the time you actually get to see it. Yeah, exactly, and hopefully then you can just you know merge it in without having to go so much back and forth. Awesome. So one more thing I definitely want to talk to you about is React Native because um, recently you've started to become, you know, very, very involved in React Native and you're now using it a lot at Artsy, etc. Uh, but we're going to save that for one of the topics that we have that have been submitted by the listeners. So what do you say? Should we start diving into those topics and questions? Uh, yeah, sure. Let's give it a shot. Let's do it. 
All right, so as you know, this show is all about answering questions and talking about topics that were submitted by the listeners. And it's really the backbone of the show. So I'm really happy for everyone who keeps sending in questions and topics and staying involved with the show. It's really cool and it makes it go forward. So for this um, episode, we have a couple of uh, great topics. And the first one, it comes from Doug Robinson. And he's asking a little bit about how you can more easily decouple your UI code from your model code. So his question is, what's the best practice for not coupling UIKit-related items with your model code so that your model code can be testable? For example, assume that each row of a table view can be displayed in a different background color and font, etc. How would you include these in your model as well as persist them without bringing in UIKit? Uh, so this is a very interesting question, I think, uh, like how to separate your view layer from your model layer in a nice way. I mean, I, I don't know if Doug is just fishing, but this this has a like a very obvious answer, um, and that is view models. Like every time you, you kind of see such an obvious, like uh, kind of like a, a shear between two systems, um, there's usually a solid abstraction that can go in the middle that can like fit. Uh, and view models are definitely this thing. It's like you have this, this you create this object that exists as like a configuration for your model specifically for how you're going to show it. So, you know, in Artsy, we have um, view models for like an artwork that could be related for a table view or that could be related to being shown inside a collection view. And it's this kind of like transitional object um, that makes it super easy to test because you realistically can just test that the view model generated by your model is what you expect it to be. And so it can contain things like the colors, font size, and references like that that your model should not have. Um, so it, it, it's, a, it's a perfect answer uh, for this. The, but they did talk about testing. So uh, first of all, I actually have a book on testing. It's called Pragmatic Testing. Um, it's not for sale. It's just on my GitHub repo somewhere. Um, but it talks a little about this. And it also talks a little bit about um, UI view snapshot testing. So to some extent, you could also argue, uh, and we've definitely got tests like this in Artsy, that maybe you don't need to test your view models because if you can create a set of view models for every single uh, state and then present it on a screen somehow and then take a snapshot of that, then you have just as good or like a much broader stroked test um, of, what the end, of what the end result of your view models um, look like. Uh, and so sometimes it makes more sense to do that than it does to have lots of small individual tests that check stuff like background color, font, font size. Absolutely. I totally agree. And I, I, really, I really agree there with a pragmatic kind of view of testing and to use different testing tools whenever they make the most sense. So usually you have kind of three different tools at your disposal. You have the snapshot tests where you compare a, uh, an image or a reference image with what actually is rendered on the screen and you make sure that they match up. You have your UI tests where you test the interactions with your app and that you know you can navigate between different screens, etc. And then you have your U unit tests where you're basically testing your logic. So for models, I think unit tests is great because then you can actually verify you know your data loader, um, you know load some data, it deserializes your JSON and turns it into models, and that's a perfect candidate for that. But like you say, I think here the case is kind of clear for if you want something which is kind of like a middleman between your core data models and your UI, then a view model is great for that. And like you say, you know, it's it's not something that necessarily needs like very 
for unit testing because you might just get to the quality control of that through other means like snapshot testing or, or UI testing. Yep. I mean, a lot of this stuff is that the more tests you write, the longer your tests take to run. And the longer your tests take to run, the less people are inclined to run them. And so, like, I really do think of, like, there's a lot of trade-offs in the, like, things you choose to write tests for. You can aim for like 100% coverage, but if that ends up making a test suite that nobody actually wants to run, um, you're just gonna have people write as, as many tests about the things that are important and you end up missing things. Yeah, absolutely. And also it usually makes, like if you try, you know, try so hard to get to 100% that you make so many compromises in your code, it can usually make the code, you know, harder to read and harder to understand. And it can also make the test suite like more flaky and more uh, like margins for errors and harder to debug. So, you know, pragmatism is definitely the key and to try to, you know, see, see where can I get the biggest bang for the buck. So, um, you know, I've seen some tests where you know, you assign a background color and then you assert that the background color was assigned or something. And maybe, maybe you know, that's not the best use. Maybe then, you know, having a snapshot test, if you really want to make sure that the right background color is being set, that that's maybe the best way to go. Um, but another part of this question here is like, like serialization or persistence. So if you have like typical kind of UI kit model-like properties, like you have a UI color, you have a UI font, etc kind of how to persist those. What is your usual approach there, Orda, if you need to persist like a color or font or something? I mean, I can't really, I mean, I can only really think of that kind of use case as being like, I want to have a user setting. Uh, generally speaking, I can't think of a time when, you know, that kind of, that information is not derived from other information. And so like, you know, you'll, you'll be storing your model somewhere probably. So I don't know if you actually need to ever store this kind of thing. Like if it's just talking about like straight up caching it, uh, I maybe do that, but probably not. Like these phones are very fast and the less state that you keep inside anything is is better. Yeah, I totally agree. I think usually you should try to derive it from your core data models, which should be serializable. And maybe, you know, the font configuration comes in from in, in, in an JSON file and it contains like the, the name of the font as a string or the color as like an array of floats or whatever. Uh, and you can persist that, but I don't think you should try to kind of persist your view model so much. I mean, that should probably be computed uh, based on the model and even just be ad hoc computed whenever needed. Yeah, agree. Perfect. Um, so let's, that was a great question. Uh, let's move over now to topic number two. So ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, the time has finally come. <laughs> We're going to talk about React Native. <laughs> awesome. So um, there's a topic here from uh, Pawan, Pawan Sharma. And he's asking that um, he recently found your order advocating React Native over native development. So his question is that, would you still prefer uh, React Native even if Apple open sourced many components of Xcode to give people more an opportunity to improve the ecosystem? So kind of is your primarily motivation for using React Native that the tool chain is open source or is there kind of more to it? So this is a very nuanced topic. Um... So generally speaking, if Xcode was open source, it would definitely be like a better pull for actually writing native code. 
but I, it, it requires so many fundamental changes in the native tool system uh, in order to actually get to a point where it's even on par at both developer experience and like the amount of code it takes to actually, you know, create the thing I want to create. Um, so it's hard to just like to just say like these tools are what make it better. It's like you know jumping from Objective C to Swift was is barely a difference at all conceptually. Like the the code that you write is different. Yes, the language is different, but like you still have UI Kit, and you know you can build better abstractions on top of it by using you know RX Swift or something like this. But at the end of the day, like. React as a like user interface paradigm is unbelievably good, and React Native as a idea of you can use this React paradigm in your native code and have like an abstraction that can work across the web, that can work across Android, that can work across iOS, and like the actual list of things that React Native supports is unbelievably long. It's like there's VR, Ubuntu, the Mac, Windows, um, and all that code is not entirely cross-platform but close it's like 90 to 80 percent cross-platform and there's a lot of advantages there as well as like the fact that i can just edit and build my own tools so the idea that if it, like more of xcode was open source then i'd be able to do that which is good because i used to build tons of my own tools in the native world but you know xcode kind of took that away from me with version 7 i think yeah, when you couldn't no longer, like, when it started being code signed, so you couldn't no longer, like, inject your own bundles and things like that. Yeah. Um, and so, like, there's a lot of, I, you know, I feel a lot of frustration with the general tooling. But, it, you know, it's a lot of this is pragmatic. It is, like, React Native is an unbelievable fit for any app that basically takes JSON and presents it. Like, iOS and UIKit and Xcode are just not built... At, for that single problem. The type of apps that Apple want you to make are the, you know, design award winning super apps that, uh, you know, that come out every so often that are like unbelievably great experiences. But the majority of apps that people are shipping are just people trying to ship a JSON renderer where it's really pretty. Yeah, what is your what is your quote about that? That apps are just pretty pictures of JSON? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that quote. Like, you know, the arts so when you know, when people say, Can I use React Native for blah blah blah? And I'm like, No, that doesn't that's not a good fit. I'm like, but you know, is your app, you know, a shopping app, a like I download a map and I present some data. Um, like it's a great fit for the majority of the types of apps that we make, uh, and definitely the type of apps that Artsy makes. Like we have like a consistent design style across web and iOS. Um, we have a um, very sparse design style, so you know we don't actually have to present many like views and labels, um, and it just means that like it's a better fit for building the type of apps that we build. Right. So in a hypothetical kind of parallel universe where you know Apple had a very different mindset around their tooling, and let's say that they were very much like open source first, and they were very you know focused on more of the things that kind of React Native is focused on, which is, you know, the quick iteration, the quick development time, the, you know, code sharing between uh, platforms, or at least like knowledge sharing between platforms. Um, could you, you know, is would you be more inclined to kind of just stay in the kind of Apple-blessed uh, sphere, or would you still kind of pursue uh, tools outside, you think, that would solve like other kinds of problems? So... I think this com there's, there's two answers to this, really. Um, f 
from Artsy's perspective, we probably wouldn't. Um, one of the biggest advantages of moving to React Native for us is that like our web code is the exact same as our iOS code. Like we have people jumping between iOS and web frequently, and like it's no different for them. In both cases, they are working inside a library that is React that uses JavaScript, well, TypeScript, which is oh, such a good language. <laughs> uh, it's like the most pragmatic language I've ever I've ever used. Um, and then they so they they have the exact same tools, the exact same experiences, and the only difference is instead of like creating UI views, they're creating HTML DOMs, um, and advocating to going back to native would effectively mean advocating to take the native developers and like silo them again. The way that we describe it internally is that we de-siloed the, mo the mobile native team and there is no mobile native team anymore. In order for us to like go back, we would actually have to recreate a native team and kind of take, pluck these people back out of their current like, you know, jobs, uh, say, okay, you, you can't really work on our Scala server over here, or you can't really edit all of like, these databases and like the APIs. Uh, really, you need to just get back on to focusing on you know building native infrastructure, and that's a pretty hard sell, realistically and like, culturally. Yeah, I can totally see that. Like you know, I I have a lot of people um, asking me about React Native, and it seems that. You know, since, you know, I'm a, I'm a big evangelist of Swift and I really love Swift and, you know, I write about it every week, etc. Uh, so people kind of many times assume that I'm going to like hate React Native, <laughs> that I'm going to be, you know, I love yeah. Swift, so therefore I need to hate React Native. Uh, but I really don't. For me, it's like it all depends on what you're optimizing for. And there's always trade-offs. So, you know, there are many things that I can see React Native do that I wish that, you know, the Swift tool chain did. And there is a lot of things to be inspired by. And what I always say is that I love the fact that React Native exists because number one, it provides an alternative, like in case you have the kind of situation you have at Artsy where you want to enable people to work more across the entire product, not just on one platform. Uh, and the other thing is that uh, it kind of, you know, shows a different way of solving the same problem. And that is always awesome because if you only have one way of doing things, you just stick to that, well, there's no innovation. But I'm very confident that, you know, the, the whole kind of playgrounds thing that is happening and the mo more move towards like more instant feedback, I think that's just going to be accelerated even in the Swift world with something like React Native kind of pushing forward in that direction. Yeah, it, it shows like a guiding light. And um, remember I said that there was two answers. The first one was Artsy's. The second one is mine, actually. It's like I, uh, you know, I built an app uh, a week or two ago and I built it all entirely in Objective-C. Like there's, there's, there's many reasons for not building things in, in React Native. It's definitely built for, a, for like specific types of apps. And there's lots of apps out there that are not that type of app. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's great that you bring that up also because I think also it can be sometimes easy to see, you know, someone like yourself, like be very, you know, excited about React Native, talking about it a lot and assume that, you know, you treat it as a silver bullet. Well, that's not clearly not the case. So, yeah, I think that's always good to mention as well that it's, it's a tool for a specific purpose. And, you know, if you have a use case that fits that purpose, then, you know, go for it. Yeah, I filed my radars on Xcode and, you know, we, we, we try and like, you know, show that these are like ways in which the tools could work. Um, just like I spent some time working on um, injection for Xcode 
now uh, to try and get you know some sort of hot reloading of code inside native apps. But you know, realistically, these problems all depend on Apple. And as we can't fix our own problems, then you know, more and more people will just go elsewhere because those problems do get fixed and other people will just do it. Yeah, totally. I can really see a big benefit of the very like vibrant community that is around React Native and all the tooling and all the things that have been done with like Visual Studio Code and all of these kind of tools around it uh, to make the development process nicer. Yeah, it's interesting to note though that like React Native is effectively oriented at web developers. It's definitely like it. It's definitely a lot of assumptions that you know a lot of web development in order to use React Native. It's it's one of the it's definitely built in the company like Facebook, where Facebook is mostly web engineers and a minority of you know mobile engineers, and they're trying to get their mobile engineers up to the speed of web engineers. So there's a lot of assumptions in there that like if you come in from an iOS world, that you'll just be like, I would never do that. That you sometimes just have to kind of live with. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Again, it's about the trade-offs and about kind of what it's built for. And, you know, if you're a person like me, like I've tried React Native and I think it's a cool tool and I keep looking at it, but I really love Swift at the end of the day and I love the tools and the kind of um, patterns that we use in Swift. And it's just like a, you know, a big, big piece of interest of mine. So, you know, I'm, I'm focused on Swift for that reason, but uh, it doesn't mean that I don't peek over the fence every once in a while and see what's on the other side. Is the grass really that green? <laughs> right. I mean, like, I've been building Danger Swift, and, like, it has realistically been two years since I've actually wrote any Swift code. And so it's, like, it's nice to get PRs from people that's like, oh, you know, this is not how we do things this way anymore. <laughs> like, oh, oh, okay. Sure, I'll accept that pull request. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good one. Cool. So I think we can segue now into the next topic. And this one comes from Ulis St. Pat. And he has a question. Do you think that Apple will change something that will make React Native break? So will there be some underlying change in the operating system that will make React Native impossible to use? I don't think so. I'll TLDR people, uh, you know, what React Native is. Oh, yeah, that's probably a good idea. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> So React Native, first of all, is a kind of app, a platform that sits on top of um, your iOS app. So it kind of replaces the entire UI view controller structure um, and tries to say that you know the entire thing can just be a collection of views instead. Um, but the way that React Native works is that you create this um, you create this JavaScript code that you ship with your app. And you also embed a library. Um, so it could either be a CocoaPod, it could just be included. I think you can just include it via source, probably. Um, and the, the, the native code will take the JavaScript and it will evaluate the JavaScript inside JavaScript core. Is that JavaScript core? Yeah, JavaScript core. Yeah. Um, and that will eventually um, kind of call back to native functions that have been exposed to JavaScript core that are kind of like this 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 state reconciler. So what it's really doing at its heart is it's running some code in JavaScript and then it's just telling some native code how, what UI views should be on the screen. Um, so in theory, not really. Um, like Apple have specifically stated today that um, you know, you can run and execute arbitrary JavaScript from the internet, and that's where it gets tricky. So if you're just using React Native 
like like what we are at Artsy, which is like you know we ship a bundle update for every time we have a new um, a new release of our app, so we still go through the app store queue and things like that. Um, but if you were trying to you know skip the review cycle and just you know ship a new version of the JavaScript instead of a new version of the your app. I think that could maybe change, but I don't realistically think that like React Native as a concept will ever break. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that JavaScript will be around for quite some time. <laughs> it's quite prominent. <laughs> and I mean, it's such a big kind of big, big building block for so many things on the web and also things like scripting that, you know, I think it's fair to say that it will be supported for a long time going forward. And I mean, if you look at the JavaScript core docs, I was actually playing around with it uh, a couple of weeks ago just for fun to kind of explore like the JavaScript core and what you can do with it. And one kind of use case that Apple even, even specifies explicitly in their own docs is that you can use it to add scripting to your own app. Like you can use it to script your own native code. And, you know, there you go. It's like pretty much official blessing that you know, this is what it's there for. This is why we build JavaScript core. So I think something like React Native, it shouldn't be seen as a kind of something, you know, circumventing the App Store, circumventing Apple. It's kind of an officially supported thing. Yep, totally. It's one of those things that like, if Apple removed like the kind of rules like that, then effectively they're just gonna break every single game in existence. So they use either Lua or JavaScript and just, you know, they ship their own embedded logic that is evaluated at runtime um, in order to, you know, make a game. And I don't think Apple is going to break games anytime soon for the entire of iOS. No, it doesn't seem like a good a good business strategy. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, do, we don't need games, right? Um, yeah, so I, I, I think what, you, what, you're, what you're saying there is probably like a good uh, way of looking at it where... You know, I don't think it will technically break. I mean, of course, sometimes there can be like an update to iOS that also requires React Native to be updated in some way. Uh, but I don't think it will completely like, you know, be, you know, not not feasible anymore. Uh, but one thing that could happen is, of course, if you are doing, you know, dodgy things like, you know, pretending to ship an FTP client and then after release, it turns into a torrent torrent app, right? Or, a, or like a... Yeah. yeah, Nintendo 64 emulator, then, of course, Apple is not going to like that. But that's a different thing than the, than the technical implementation. Yeah, you could do that with Objective-C and Swift anytime you want. Yeah, totally. Just, uh, you know, put some A-B testing flags in there, you know, turn them on, see how it Check goes. Check see if it's in Cupertino. <laughs> exactly. Wasn't that what, like, didn't Uber do that? Something like that? Yeah, yeah crazy, they did. crazy stuff. <laughs> All right. Um, so those are our, like really interesting topic. Uh, is there anything more like about React Native in general that you'd like to talk about? I don't know. I, I think, I like realistically, I think the one that everyone really should know is that like JavaScript as a language is significantly better than it is uh, than you think it is realistically. And there has been so much effort in the last two years to turn it into a language that is stunning. It's as terse as Swift and, um, you know, significantly more flexible. And I think that, you know, like I said earlier, just because you love Swift doesn't mean that you need to hate JavaScript. And I think with all these things, you know, give it a go, give it a try. And even if you decide that at the end of the day, it's not for you, like I have, uh, it's still great to try. And it's great to try to be inspired by and to kind of see what you could do, um, you know, with different patterns, etc. And to also just involve yourself in a different community with like a different mindset is super valuable. 
Yeah, you you gain a lot of uh, like interesting abstractions when you look outside of you know your current ecosystem. Like working with React has really changed the way I write every type of code. Um, and that's been like a really positive uh, like engineering growth for me as someone that's like you know 10, 15 years down the line. Yeah, it gives you a bit of a new spark, right? Like a new spark of motivation. Cool. So we're going to switch gears now a little bit and talk a little bit more about open source. So we have a question here from friend of the show, Mateusz Science. And he asks, what's the state of open source? Like more and more contributors are moving away because demands are too big. We all have regular jobs. So did open source ever help you get a new job? And what's your approach to supporting legacy open source? Or is it possible to even find a job where you can do open source during work hours? So there's a couple of different questions in here. Uh, I think what we could start with is probably like, how do we deal with working with open source that we both do uh, while still working a job as well? Like how do we balance those two things? Well, I cheated. Um, I, I created, uh, you know, me and our CTO created open source by default at Artsy. Um, and that took, you know, three or four years. So I worked, I've been working at Artsy for seven years. And over the time, we have changed the culture to become the like open source friendly in, in terms of this, this question. It's like we moved every single front end uh, tool and an app to be available for us to work in the open. And that like, you know, that, that contributes to the open source and it might not necessarily be the open source that we talk about when we say like, you know, I want to work on open source because you generally are working on libraries and shared infrastructure, but like making it so that everything you do kind of relies on open source and is open source makes it very trivial for you to say like, oh, I need to spend some time working on this because it's another one of our open source dependencies. Yeah, that's, 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 of course, like a dream scenario for someone who wants to work on open source a lot <laughs> is to have like an official blessing from the CTO, like go for it, <laughs> you know, open source all the things. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there's still probably a balance to be struck for you. Like when you say, you know, like you say, like, just because we do open source by default doesn't mean that we're just you know, working on libraries all the time working on, you know, shared, you know, shared tools. So, um, there's definitely a balance to be struck there. And for me, I also try to kind of align my kind of interests and the the tools that I need to build with what I need to do at my day job. So just like you said earlier, where it's like many of the tools that you work on, they come from concrete problems that you had to solve. And then it's a much easier sell to kind of either, either, even, either if you work for a client or you know your employer or your team, uh, you know, few people are going to accept that you're going to work on something that is completely unrelated because why would they spend money on that? But if it's something that will bring them a lot of value, then why not? That's that's a much easier sell. Yep, definitely. Uh, the majority of like my contributions to the open source community are entirely based on things that I need to get done at work. Um, and, you know, that... Uh, the work trusts me to be able to make the decision about whether the thing I'm working on is actually important to what we're trying to do. Yeah, and what you said earlier also I think here is key where you said that when you bring a dependency in, you look at it as your own code. You work on it, you make changes, you make improvements, and that is a great way to get started with open source during work hours because almost all projects that I've ever worked on uses open source as dependencies. But sometimes we can treat open source kind of like separate products 
where it's almost like, you know, you have a problem, you have to call the customer support, which in this case is filing a GitHub issue. Yeah. But you don't have to look at it that way. You can totally like look at it as part of your code base and that way it's much easier to get started. It's much easier to, you know, get time during work hours to actually work on open source. Yeah, uh, I think one of the, like there's this fabulous statistic that's like for most communities, 90% are consumers and 10% are producers. So if you think of that, you know, in the programmery business terms of there's a funnel there, <laughs> you want to be trying to do the, everything you can to convert those consumers into producers, just because one, it'll help your own stuff and two, it'll help the entire community. So like a lot of the, like the first part of that question is like, what is the state of, of OSS? It's, it's basically the same as it's always been, but hopefully we can keep building better ways to introduce people that were like consumers into actually being producers inside the open source economy. Yeah, totally. And I think also one thing there that the question mentions is that, you know, some people are moving away from open source and there's definitely the thing of like, you know, open source kind of burnout. And I think where that kind of comes from is if you uh, take on too much responsibility yourself as a maintainer, where you say, you know, this is my project, it's on my name, it's on my GitHub page, that means that I must be the only person who maintains it. And I'll be honest, that was definitely my mindset when I started working open source. I was kind of like, oh, here's my project, my, it's kind of part of my portfolio, you know? But now with, especially now with my, with my newer projects like Marathon and Imagine Engine, uh, I'm definitely more like, let me invite people as contributors, let them get as much access as I have, let them review pull requests, let them, let them help manage issues because that's the only way you can really scale things. You cannot work on, you know, a hundred projects yourself. It's impossible. Uh, yeah, this, this we have a document. There's a a, a literal thing called the Moya contributors. Uh, what's it? Maybe Moya community contributions guidelines or something like that. It, I always forget what it's called. But regardless, it's like the theory of this exact discussion. It is like me and Ash, uh, who you had on earlier, we sat down and we like said what are the things that we have been doing informally and how can we like explicitly state what we think and how we think um these kind of communities should be ran so it's just the tldr is exactly what you just said it is the moment somebody ha expresses any real interest in doing anything we give them way too much access the only thing they can't do is ship and that is basically how i managed to maintain like tens to maybe even like hundreds of open source projects that are reasonably active at this point. Yeah. And if you only invite people in, there are people who will be really, really excited about joining the project because a lot of people want to do open source, but they don't really know where to start. So if you kind of provide them with an angle, uh, you know, with an entry point, then that's usually very appreciated. And it's great for you as well as a maintainer. So win-win. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it's part of that funnel, right? Yeah. <laughs> Got to get people in there. <laughs> get so. them through the funnel. <laughs> <laughs> and like, there's the, you know, the, it, it's exactly how it's thought about in, in GitHub. It's like, how do they get people from being like passive consumers of open source to being active contributors back to either small repos or building their own things? Um, at Artsy, we, we try and like game the system by making sure almost everything we do is both open source and that the way in which we interact with each other is through like open source channels. You know, you write issues, you send pull requests, CI runs, you send forks. Um, and all these things are done so that we feel like when we contribute to each other, it's like we're contributing over open source. And so the like jump between 
I'm sending a PR to my app to I'm sending a PR to know, Ruby the language, Swift the language, like these these mega projects. Like we do that all the time in Artsy because everyone is primed for doing that kind of thing. Yeah, you're used to it. So it's not like a big deal for you to send a pull request. And I think that's that's great when you can get to that point. And the, the only way you can get there is just do it. Like start doing it and do it more and eventually you'll get used to it. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, so really good stuff. Uh, I think we have time for one more question. And this one comes from Vilmar van Herden. And he asks, how much of your development time is personal versus professional? And how do you keep the momentum going amidst personal life and relationships? So how to kind of balance the kind of free time coding with, you know, your personal life and also your professional time. So what do you think about that? I think when you're in the top like 100 of the GitHub activity people, you kind of like there just isn't a separation between all three of those things, personal personal development, professional development, uh, and really and your relationship and private life. Like all of those things are just like effectively mingled. I I respond to issues on my phone when I'm walking around. Um, my work at Artsy is so intrinsically linked to both myself and Artsy that like, it's hard to say like, this is an Artsy project and this is an order project. Um, so a lot of it is just like, there isn't really a clean separation between all those things for myself. And I'm, I'm okay with this. You probably have your shopping list on <laughs> GitHub. Yeah. I mean, it, well, my DNA is on GitHub. <laughs> um, <laughs> like... Uh, there is like my I have uh, that is like slash order slash DNA. Um, I have like slash order slash life, which is where I keep like general to dos. Like the idea of danger was written on order slash life, and then like you know six months later I came back to it, and two and a half years I'm still building it. Um, like the, there is like once you start to work in that mindset, then like it's hard to like separate a lot of these things. Yeah. And like, I don't, I'm not going to pitch this as like, this is a great thing for a lot of people and maybe it's not a great thing at all, but this is just the situation that I managed to like put myself into. I'm, I'm pretty happy with it. I don't feel like I'm burning myself out or burning out my relationships. It definitely like is a trade-off on time a lot, but like the, the things that I build and the, like the, you know, I'm really proud of my work. Yeah, you should be. Uh, and so I, it takes time and effort. Yeah, totally. And I mean, it's def different ways of viewing it. Like, you know, you can you can totally be a great programmer, you know, awesome developer, and just, you know, do it during work hours. That's fine. It's, there's nothing wrong with that. And I think that's important to state as well. But if you are like super passionate, and you have lots of ideas and lots of projects, and you're very creative, then probably you're not going to be satisfied just doing it nine to five and then completely forgetting about it. And I'm kind of the same way. I'm not as extreme as you yet. <laughs> Time and patience, <laughs> but, man. Yeah, exactly. But I, I mean, I fire up a playground almost every night and I do some crazy experiments. Like what happened if I nest these generics inside here and use this overload and what happens? Oh, the compiler crashed. Uh, you know, it's, this is the kind of things that I do. And this is where a lot of the ideas come from, from kind of my Swift tips and my, my blog posts, etc. Where, where, you know, I just experiment a lot and I really enjoy it. Like, it's kind of like a hobby for me. And, you know, so I don't also like see that, of course, I see a, a clear separation between like when I'm 
kind of working for my clients and I'm, you know, doing my freelance stuff and when I'm doing my own personal projects. But when I am working on those things like my games and my open source stuff and all the things that I'm involved in, it doesn't feel like work to me because it's more like my hobby. But that being said, like this last past week, for example, I have almost done zero after hours coding. I've just been like spending time with my girlfriend, you know, just got a dog. So I've been walking the dog and yeah. stuff like that. So it definitely kind of comes and goes for me in waves. Uh, some weeks I work a lot, you know, and I do a lot of stuff. And some weeks I completely relax and some weeks I go on vacation and I don't even bring my computer. And, you know, it's I think it's all about balance and it's all about knowing yourself and knowing kind of when you're taking it too far and not becoming too stressed and also learning to take time to to relax every once in a while. Yeah, trust other people to take over your responsibilities every now and again. Um, we have a, a theory in Artsy that you should work yourself out of a job, right? You can either <laughs> automate it or you can you know train someone up to be your replacement as you can go work on harder things. And, you know, being able to like stop working on things is just as important as choosing what to work on. Yeah, absolutely. Great. So I think that's it for this episode. So thank you so much to everyone who sent in questions and topics. Uh, they were really great. And if you want to submit a question or topic for an upcoming episode, you can do so by going to swiftbysundell.com slash podcast, or you can just tweet your question or topic to at swiftbysundell on Twitter. So this is the end now of this episode. So all that remains is for me to thank you very much, Orda, for joining me. Uh, you're welcome, man. Yeah, it was a real pleasure. Lots of good discussions and uh, always really interesting to hear like, you know, your your philosophies and, you know, what 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 you're doing and what you're up to next. <laughs> Thanks, dude. You too. Cool. So, before we hang up, uh, if people want to find you online for the three people who are listening to the show who don't already follow you, uh, where should they go? Well, so for about 10, 15 years, I've been competing with a lake in Italy to become the number one. <laughs> I know. To become the number one search result for Orta. And I think I, I think I won about like five maybe two or three years ago. So at this point now, if you just literally write the word Orta on the internet, chances are you're gonna find me. <laughs> awesome. And you're at Orta on Twitter as well, right? Yeah, I, I mean literally, I'm at Orta on everything awesome except for the italian tourism board <laughs> yeah one of these days yeah one of these days they follow me on twitter and i follow them on twitter one of these days oh so it's a nice nice relationship yeah like nice for nice friendly competition <laughs> yeah <laughs> awesome uh, you can also find me on twitter i'm at john sundell and you can find everything about this podcast and the weekly swift blog at swiftbysundell.com thank you so much for listening everybody and i'll talk to you on the next episode <laughs>